But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Last night, if you were, um, some of us had a, a costume party for little kiddos um, at the Keltners, and the guys were talking together about camping out and their experiences camping out. And I remember when I, the first time I ever camped out, I was, you know, a, a, about six or seven. And, like, I had seen this show, Lewis and Clark, you know, and they just went and they just drank out of streams, right? I mean, they had to make it all the way across the country. And so I was a young kid and thought, well, like, if Lewis and Clark can just drink this brackish water out of streams, then I certainly can too, right? And I can remember just getting my cup and drinking this brackish water. It, it was, it was, it looked clear. And oh my gosh, it was not clear. <laughs> and I spent several days when I came home um, otherwise preoccupied because I drank brackish water. And th- then I went, th- the, other, the other month we went to Colorado, a bunch of guys, and we went you know, hiking. And, and my father-in-law has got this filtration thing where you take that same brackish water out of a stream. And you put it in this filtration device and it filters down this gross, muddy twigs, dirt, and what drips out of this filter is perfectly clean and pure, drinkable water. And we lived off of it for four days. It was really amazing. And what you see happen in books of the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 5, is you see Paul taking all of the brackishness of our hearts as Christians You do not become pure and clean the day you become a Christian. But the Lord is taking that brackish water and he is using the filter of the gospel to pull that brackish stuff into the filter to let drip, sometimes slowly, but yet assuredly, slow drips of clean, pure water that other people are able to live off of that become clean. What you find in Ephesians Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are what we call the positive and the negatives of the gospel. Now, when I say negative, I do not mean bad. I just mean the prohibitions. So if you look, for example, if you have your Bibles open, look at, you know, 424. It says you put on the new man. That's the positive. But then in 431, it says put off bitterness. And then you see in 5, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, imitate God as beloved children. Put on right? The positive. And then you see in verses 3 through 6 the negative. And last week you talked about how these are the magnetic poles, if you will. The positive and the negative, they go together and they make an incredibly strong bond. And it's incredibly powerful in the Christian life. You need both the positive and the negative. You need both the commands, the negative, what you should not do, And you also need the positive, what you should do and who you are in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. John Owen, who is a 
16th, 17th century Puritan once said this. So much talk of, intimida- of imitating Christ and following his example go about in Christian circles. Now, granted, this was in the 17th century. But no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior and life. If they know nothing of the transforming power of the gospel, the transforming power of beholding his glory, the truth is that most of us are woefully defective in this and that many are discouraged because thoughts of this glory of Christ seem too high and too hard. Many of us grew up in churches that emphasized the negative but did not really talk about the positive. They emphasized what you should not do. You don't drink. You don't have sex before marriage. You live your life in a certain way. But they didn't talk about the glory that is ours in Christ. And so in those hours of trial and temptation, you have yet nothing to which to appeal to help you actually make smart decisions by just saying no. Theologian scholars call this idea of the positive and the negative vivification and mortification. Vivification just means to vivify, to live unto something. And mortification, to mortify, means to die to something else. You must just say yes and just say no. They're all right here. In fact, you can almost turn to any passage in the Bible and find both the positive and the negative. Let me just give you one example. You know, in, um, in Exodus 20, you know, in Deuteronomy 5, both these places talk about the Ten Commandments. You know, in Exodus 20, Moses goes up on the mountain, doesn't he? And God didn't just go, bam, here's ten things you got to do. He first gave Moses the positive, what he should live for. And he gave him good news. And the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have the negative now, follows the positive. No other gods before me. But God always connects the prohibitions of Scripture to what are positive aspects of what he has done for his people. And if you get those confused, you will be signing up for the school of Phariseeism 101. And we are shot through with it. It's in the water we drink in our culture. Because it's assumed that you go to church. And it's assumed that you have some relative relationship with Christianity. And when that happens, oh friends, if you are not resting in what Jesus Christ has done for you, that all these prohibitions that Timothy just read become incredibly weighty burdens. And you leave church week after week burdened by your sin and your shame because you can't keep up with that and you wonder is the gospel really good news after all and paul reminds us in this passage that yes it is but if you're going to begin to understand the prohibitions you first have to understand the glory of christ and to develop the habit the joy coming to church where we say what we believe because we're trying to help us form and shape our language so that we lean into all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Does that make sense? John Owen also said this, 
on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more I see of all that Jesus has done for me in the cross, through his perfect life and sacrificial death, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my own eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to the world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. And now Paul gives us, in verses 3 through 6, what looks like a whole list of things not to enjoy. But many of us know that they're enjoyable. And we struggle with how to live out the prohibitions of Scripture as believers in light of what Jesus has already done for us. So, we're going to dive into these three verses in the moments we have together. And we're going to tackle as many of them as we can. It looks like there's a bunch of prohibitions here, if you lower your eyes to your text, three through six. But really there are only three. Sexual immorality and impurity. Covetousness. And what he calls filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. So there's sexual immorality, there's greed, and thirdly, there's your speech. So I'm going to take these in reverse order. And we're going to deal with the first two this week, and the next week we'll come back and talk about sexual immorality. So let's dive into these. First, let's look at speech. I want you to recognize, first of all, that before we tap into what exactly he means by filthiness and foolish talk and coarse joking, the unity of the biblical ethic. What I mean is that how the Bible is no respecter of sins. Notice how, like, the the conservative right tends to have their pet sins, just like the liberal left. The Bible stands above that. And he puts both of these things, the conservative right loves to talk about sexual immorality. And the liberal left loves to talk about the use of money for the poor. The Bible actually puts these both side by side. In Amos chapter 2, for example, in the prophets, it says that you sell the righteous for silver. It says that you sell the poor for a pair of sandals. You step over them in order to make your wealth. And then in the very next sentence, it says the father and the son go into the same woman. So the prophets are no respecter of sins. They put materialism and prostitution, both as heinous. And we tend, as a culture and as a even as a subculture, as Christians, we tend to elevate certain sins as worse than the others. Friends, there's no place for that in Scripture. Both what we do with our bodies and what we do with our checkbooks are sacred unto the Lord. Do you see that? So let's talk about speech. We'll just take them one by one. The word filthiness refers to sexually impure talk. Oh, brother, seriously? Like, you're going to tell me that my speech has to change when I become a Christian? Well, Paul says, yes. When the, when the gospel grips you, it grips every part of you. It's like the brackish water. Everything is being filtered through the gospel. 
everything. And so when it says you're filthy talk, it means sexually impure talk. When it uses the word foolishness, it's the word weightiness or thoughtless or weightless. You know, Proverbs often says that the language you use is like the fruit of a tree. Think about that image for a second. Like the words that come out of your mouth, you think they're just vibrations in your vocal cords and air coming out of your mouth. But the Bible says that they are like fruit hanging on a tree. And people feast and feed on your words. And friends, your words and my words are either fruit off which people will live or they are poison off of which people are dying. Our words are weighty. They don't just disappear into the air. That's why when husbands, as, at least if you're like me, you often say things and you're like, and you can't quite take it back. There are some times that, that I have lunch with someone and I'll come home and I'll say to Lauren, Lauren, I just had lunch with so-and-so and, you know, they said this and I'm just, I'm just chewing on this all day. It was just, it was so helpful to me. And you just kind of chew on words. You just they, f- they feed your soul. You know what I mean. People who are wise, who use their words well, tend to have this kind of characteristic. When you're around them, you hang on to every word that they say because their words are like fruit. They're beautiful. They're nourishing to you. Are your words like that? Like your language is the greatest resource that you have besides your presence, arguably. Do you use your words? Are they weighty? Or are they light and thoughtless? Do they poison people? Proverbs also likens your language not just to fruit on a tree, but to swords, knives. It says your language is like a sword. You know, the other day we were going to Andrew's soccer game and, you know, parents, you've been there and we're, you know, it's like utter chaos getting the shin guards and the soccer cleats on. And then out of the back seat, out of the peanut gallery in the back of our car, we heard somebody say, stupid. And my wife, without missing a beat, goes, whoa. You do know, um, kiddos, that your language is like a knife. And the words you use are sharp. And you know those kitchen knives we have in our kitchen? You know how when you watch mommy and daddy cut those tomatoes? Like, you can't use those big kitchen knives yet, can you? And they say, no. Well, words like stupid are like a giant kitchen knife. And there are things that are stupid. And there are good uses for that word. But you are not ready to use that word without cutting yourself. And so you need to learn to watch mom and to watch dad use words like you watch us use those kitchen knives. And when you're old enough and when you learn, you can then take those knives and you can use them with precision to do productive and healthy things. That also, she just, it was just on the fly and it was beautiful. It was, a, it was a great picture to me. I asked her if she wanted to preach the sermon, but she said no. It was a great picture to me of what it's like to use your words because your words are like daggers. And those of us who are in high school, you know what this is like because you know about online bullying. Sometimes your words can literally become 
knives. As young girls will listen to online bullying and they'll look at themselves in the mirror and they'll decide to take drastic action because of what's been said about them online. Your words are like knives. And your language is one of the most precious gifts God has given you. Do you use your language in a way that glorifies and honor him? That's what Paul is saying. The brackish water drips through the filter in every aspect of your life. Not just your Sundays. Not just your body. But the words you use are being conformed more and more into his image because of the power, the transforming power of what he did for us on the cross to renew us and to make us into his new humanity. When you become a Christian, you are becoming more fully human. Because to be human does not mean to err. Unlike the saying. Because Jesus never erred and he was human, wasn't he? To be fully human means to be like Christ, perfectly blameless. You and I are fallen humanity. And as the gospel, as the penny drops and the gospel grips your heart, you become more and more obedient to what scripture calls you to do, even in the language that you use, even in your speech. Now he also uses this phrase, joking. (laughs) Oh great, you mean I have to like change my jokes? You know, I have to start telling like Baptist and Presbyterian jokes now? Is that what makes it holy, joking and laughter? No, what Paul is saying actually is that you don't laugh enough. Like you actually aren't as funny as you should be. You don't use humor like you should. Because humor in the Christian life isn't just necessary, it becomes inevitable for us. Why? Because nothing is sacred to us except God. So it's okay to laugh at yourself. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. You're not protective. It no longer are those jokes about your wealth or your body or your kids or your family. They're not a fit because the only thing that's sacred to you is Christ and his love for you. And so there ought to be, if I can say it this way, a whole lot more holy laughter in our church than there is in our homes. We ought to be filled with laughter. Our children ought to grow up hearing the ringing of the laughter of their mom and dad because There are no sacred cows in our life anymore except for the Lord. And do you see how that revolutionizes the way? I mean, on, on the one hand, we either, you know, we joke around a lot and we're painfully sarcastic. Or we're like a stuffed shirt and we never laugh at all. And we have this like kind of inflated sense of self importance. Or on the other hand, you don't laugh at all or you make fun of a lot of people and yourself a lot. Not because you have an inflated sense of self-importance, but you actually have an incredible sense of self-pity and self-hatred. Both a sense of self-importance and a sense of self-hatred will cause you to be humorless. But the gospel says, don't have crude joking But it never says don't laugh. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it is not only necessary, but it's inevitable that Christians grow more in humor the older and the longer they walk in light of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? We should instead sparkle with thanksgiving 
That's what verse 4 says. Let there be thanksgiving. Is your talk forgettable? Are your jokes always at somebody else's expense? Are your words like fruit? Or are they like daggers in an unhealthy way? Are they like precise scalpels that help people see themselves and understand themselves better and help you be honest about who you are? Or are they like poison that drag people down? Those are the diagnostic questions for our hearts, Christians. Now let's go from your speech. Let's take this next one. Let's take covetousness. What does that mean? The word covetousness is a word we don't use very much anymore, but it simply means greed. And it doesn't just mean greed, like greed you see on the outside. It's greed on the inside. That's what covetousness means. To covet something means you're greedy on the inside. You may not show it. You may put up an incredible front. But it means that on the inside, you're grieving. You want it. And I begin to think this week, why, why am I covetous? And I think there are probably two primary reasons why I'm covetous, why I'm greedy on the inside. The first The first is because I think that the money that I have is something that I've earned. And therefore that I can use it however I want. You know that the money that we earn is given to us as a gift by God. But one of the most striking um, um, ways that helps me see if I'm covetous or not is this. Do I live at my means? Now, I, I didn't say that wrong. I said it as I meant it. Do I live at my means? In other words, we all know that it's not good to live over your means, right? That's easy. But do you know that if you live at your means, it probably means that you're covetousness, that you're covetous? Why? Because we're called to be generous people. And if you're constantly going to the edge of your budget in every category, how can you freely give? You know, Scripture says there are two primary identifiers of covetousness. One is envy, and the other is worry. One is looking at somebody else and envying what they have. And the other is being so overwhelmed with worry that we wonder if God's really going to provide for us. We tend to think that the money we have is ours because we, doggone it, we've earned it. And therefore, we are allowed to push our budgets to the very edge in order to provide for things for our family. Listen, that is not a Christian idea. In fact, you guys have all seen Mad Men. Some of you have. I can't endorse that show, but it's interesting and good to watch at times. So there's a guy named Don Draper. I'll stop talking. There's a guy named Don Draper. And in the 1950s, a real Don Draper who worked um, in the marketing firm said this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and using of goods into rituals. That we make the consumer at his core a religious being. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego, our satisfaction 
in life in consumption. That was in the 1950s. Recently, Harper's Magazine had an ad for avarice, for greed. And it had a picture of Santa Claus on the front. And, and Santa Claus has all these letters in front of him. And they all have, I want, you know, dot, 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 dot. And he's looking over the rim of his glasses right at you in this image. And he says, do you remember your Christmas list as a child? And then it says, well, your Christmas list has changed. But it hasn't gotten any shorter, has it? And the ad was in a secular magazine like Harper's in order to convict the readers of their incredible avarice during the holiday season. We long to fill our lives with stuff. Gordon Gekko, you remember the 1980s movie Wall Street? He had that famous line where he stood before his stockholders, everybody there, and he said, greed. It is what powers our country. It's what powers the world. Greed is good. Do you remember that? Two millennia ago, there was a book written called The Republic by a man named Plato. It was written in opposition of people who thought that the self-aggrandizing, uh, the self-aggrandizing, I can't say it, the self-fulfillment in purchasing stuff. How about that? Their desire for more and more without limits was the driving force behind human nature. And Plato wrote to these guys to respond that self-fulfillment materialism is not at the core of what it means to be human. But it's such a common misconception these days. Some of us give $5 to charity, $10 to the church. And that means something. It really does. But for most of us, giving $10 away doesn't mean a thing. But yet we push ourselves to the very limit of what our paycheck reads. And then we wonder why we are so despairing and frustrated at the end of the month. It's because we think that the money we have is ours to spend how we want. That we have earned it. The money that you earn is a gift. I, th- I think the second reason um, that a lot of us tend toward greed is because we have a fear of poverty. Some of us have a very real experience of poverty. You know, some of us, some of us have grandparents, some of us even in this room may have been around for the Great Depression. My, my wife's grandmother is the classiest woman I've ever met. But they give her a hard time because to this day, sometimes she still reuses tinfoil because in the Great Depression, that was precious. And they had to keep everything they had. Some of us have this incredible fear of poverty that it actually leads us not to be more generous, but to be more and more covetous. Whether your stock, full, your, your stock portfolio is incredibly aggressive or incredibly conservative, that fear of poverty drives us to sometimes become so insulated that we cease to be generous with what the Lord has given us. Living at the level of your means can be just as covetous as living over your means. Now, there's another form of covetousness that may not be quite as clear for most of us, and it's this. 
if you make your money, if you make your living strictly by making things that are not helpful to the rest of the world, that's covetous. The classic example of this, of course, is old Walt in Breaking Bad. You know, the, the heart of the entire story of Breaking Bad is, is about a man who longed to provide for his family. He wanted to be able to take it, which is a noble and good thing, but he thought what he had was not enough to sustain them. He had to provide for them, and so he gets wrapped up in this incredibly evil and dark world of sin in order to provide. And what was once just some easy thing to make a quick buck for his family while he has cancer becomes not only horrible, but he spirals into a deeper, deeper, deeper um, pattern of sin. And then he doesn't die of his cancer, and he's stuck in it. And the next episode of Breaking Bad ought to be Walt coming clean, going to his brother-in-law and confessing all of these things to his brother-in-law. And then the movie ends and it closes and we're done with the series. But you and I know that that will not sell episodes. So that will never happen. But it would be beautiful for Walt to move to repentance. But so many of us, So many of us make one silly decision and we grow covetous and we get in this negative spiral and we find ourselves sucked into it so quickly just by coming to Trinity and looking around at what people have and we think, oh, I'd love to have that too. Is that covetous in your heart? Assess that. Ask yourself those good and hard questions. When my brothers were little, and I would wrestle with them. Um, whenever it got out of hand, you know, guys, you know what this is like. Whenever it got out of hand, there'd always be like one phrase to let all the brothers know, all right, man, like, um, this is going to get bad real quick. And here was the phrase. Like, we'd wrestle together, and we would rough house. And one of my brothers would be like, man, I ain't playing. I ain't playing. Stop it. And in this passage, Paul says as clearly as he can, I ain't playing. Because notice what it says here. It doesn't just say, okay, if you have a problem with materialism or if you have a problem with your mouth, it's okay. Just, you know, just go to, just confess it, move on. No. Look what it says. They are out of place. For you may be sure of this. I ain't playing. Verse 5. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is materialistic, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let nobody deceive you, no matter how good your justification may be. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Friends, God ain't playing. And I'm in the same boat with you. We've got to be a church that's generous, who gives money away. And one of the practical ways you do that is by sitting down as a family and deciding what standard of living will you live at. And if you get a raise, wonderful. It's just more money to give away to people. Or imagine if you made 20% less than you make right now. What would you cut from your spending cycles? How would your lifestyle change if you didn't have 20% of your income? Well, why not practice that now? And free yourself up to be able to give more away. 
save a little, give it away. That is what makes us human. Frederick Buechner once said that the trouble with being rich is that since you can solve with your paycheck virtually all practical problems that bedevil ordinary people, you are left in your leisure with nothing but great human problems to contend with. How to be happy. How to love and be loved. How to find meaning and purpose in your life. In other words, if you can just write a check to solve your problems, the real problems that you have are problems that you cannot write checks to solve. Who are you? How do you grow content in this life? What brings you satisfaction? Buechner continues, In desperation, the rich are continually tempted to believe that they can solve these problems too with their checkbook which is presumably what led Jesus to remark one day for a rich young man to get to heaven is about as easy as a Cadillac getting through a revolving door. What would it be like if you cared as much as we as a culture tend to do for those big sins, our pet sins, cared as much about our materialism, What would it be like for you to open up your doors to your neighbors more frequently? For example, what would it be like once a month on Saturday to just invite your neighborhood over for Sunday breakfast or Saturday breakfast? Cook up some scrambled eggs and bacon. Just put it in your budget and bless the people in your neighborhood. You know the kind of relationships that might emerge out of doing that on a regular basis? I mean, you would be with people in some of the most happy and despairing times of their life. They would know that third Saturday of the month, we go over to the Primes, or we go over to the Van Wyes or the Smiths, or we go over to Brandon and Maddie's house. It would be amazing what might happen if you begin to spend your money with as much aggression for other people as you try to defend yourself against those pet sins which you feel are really, really bad. The Bible makes no distinction between sins. It is all heinous in Christ's sight. At the end of the screw tape letter, some of you saw at the PAC a couple of weeks ago when Max McLean came to do his performance of screw tape. Screw tape um, is receiving these letters from his uncle Wormwood, and in one of them, Wormwood says, "We, the demons, produce this sense of ownership not only by pride but by confusion." We teach them not to notice the different senses of how to say mine, the finely graded differences that run from my shoes to my dog, to my servant, to my wife, to my husband, to my master, to my country, to my God. They can all be taught, all these humans, silly as they are, to reduce all these senses of mine to one thing, that they are theirs and hands off to anyone who threatens them. And all the time, the joke is on them. Because the word mine, Wormwood says, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. And friends, those of us who come empty-handed, who have nothing 
and who are ba- made more fully human as we let that brackish water of our life, in light of the gospel, become clean and clear, able for other people to drink and nurse off of. We become a blessing to others. We're empowered to do that by Christ himself, who has everything, who didn't open his mouth when he could have defended himself. The one who is beauty beyond description, who paid your death on the cross, who knows you so intimately that he knows every anxiety that you have right now. And he knows how much money you make. He knows your vocabulary. And he wants you to use both your language and your money in a way to honor and glorify him. Because Christ, who was rich, became poor for us. So that we who in our poverty have nothing to bring to the table in salvation might be made rich in him. Jesus Christ sings his love over you. Christians, your Savior loves you. Rest in that peace and that hope and look to him to allow the gospel that changed your heart when you first believed to continue to change the entirety of your life. Nothing is off limits to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us as a people, as a community, as friends, as believers to see that the gospel is not just the way into the Christian life, but it is the way that the entire life is transformed. Oh, Father, would you enable us by your Holy Spirit to believe that we indeed can be changed and that we can walk in obedience by the power of your Holy Spirit, but only by that power. Father, for those of us who are discouraged, who seem to try to walk out the prohibitions in Scripture but just get beat down, would I pray that you will sing over them your love for them, that they will see the positive, not just the negative. They will see your glory. And like John Owen, we will meditate on how beautiful you are. And that will lead us in to the greater practice of the Christian life. So do these things, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.